Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Starship Sofa, show 105. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, yes, show 105. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Bit of a special show today. We have what the main fiction today is from the collection, the 25th anniversary collection of Writers of the Future. We have one of those new hot writers, C.L. Holland, UK writer as well. So do look out for that. A fantastic story, a great narration as well by our very own Kate Baker. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Writers of the Future and, you know, how you can kind of get involved and stuff like that as well. So a great show. Little heads up what's coming on then. Today's show, we have a poem by David C. Capascal Merkel. Flash fiction comes from Ben Burgess. We have film talk by our good friend, Mr. Rob Barnett. Then we have the main fiction, which is Reflection of Memory by C.L. Holland. Then coming in, in last place, <laughs> but by no means least, it's our good friend Larry with his progress report. So there you go, a fine show. So the editorial is just again it's me talking about things of starship so far it lots lots are kind of happening now behind the scenes just to you know get ready for the christmas rush well it's actually it's a little bit to do with that but it's more as well got josh there he's polishing the hull of starship so far getting it spick and span and actually because there's so much going on we're going to have to, uh, we, we, <laughs> the, the royal we, Josh, is, we're going to have to really 
kind of modify the ship. You know what I mean? She she needs a good overhaul. <laughs> That's probably the best way to put it. There's loads of little things now connected with Starship Sofa. You know, we've got the kind of the book and that website there. And there's going to be a shop coming on. And it's just... If you if you land straight on Starship Sofa, you know, you, you just get really hit with that kind of blog page. And it was actually, it was Robin Bradshaw, a listener, Robin, who actually, you know, does a little bit of kind of writing for myself. Robin suggested, you know, we're going to need like a kind of a landing page. And so there's a lot going to go on in the kind of next few weeks there and with the kind of shop and with, you know, the, the, the downloads being available again and t-shirts are, I'm guessing t-shirts maybe when you actually listen to this show they're not there but they're there if you go over to Zazzle but, and Josh is going to kind of get them all sorted out and linked in you know there's going to be the shop open on the site D has worked <laughs> he's worked his little fingers off you know what I mean bless him and there's some great illustration you know D's come up with this like logo which I just love do you know what I mean and like I say I've got it plastered everywhere you know so that that's coming soon it's it's on thermos cups it's on normal cups t-shirts female t-shirts male t-shirts the lot so do look out for that another little thing that's coming off is part of the shop is going to be dedicated to fridge magnets yes (laughs) i'll tell you the story about this it's quite quite bizarre i had this idea i thought oh you know fridge magnets a little quirky little thing i'll be able to do them do you know what I mean? So I takes myself off to Hobbycraft, <laughs> buys myself some, because a long, long time ago, I used to kind of make a little few things and stick them on certain pictures as well, and actually, you know, they were selling, so, you know, I was, I can do that, I'll have a go at that again. I wanted to make the logo as, you know, a, a kind of fridge magnet, you know what I mean, easy peasy lemon squeezy, as I say so you know, it gets me off my way to work, you know, it calls in at the Hobbycraft art shop there, gets myself some clear, or just, you know, the kind of, the children's clear that dries in the air, you know. Oh, very professional. You're going to get sold some quality merchandise here. So gets me a little clear, little carving knife, and gets to work, you know, my dinner hour there, and I sets it all out, and it looked terrible. <laughs> I'm talking, right? Making this putty fridge magnet. And it just, it, oh, it looked. So, so, you know, I've got this thing in front of us. And I was thinking, you know, this is not right. This is not the dream I had of, like, world domination in the kind of, you know, the the markets. You know, like, world global expansion of starships. Over. I've got this thing that just lump, looked like some sort of limp phallic thing. I was just shocking. You know, and I had the thought, I thought, oh, and it, you know, these kind of little bright, well, bright sparks, and you know, it's me doing no work here. I thought, oh, Steve. Now, Steve Boehm, who's, I think, Steve, is that you right? <laughs> Boehm. Steve's actually done a couple of works for Starship Sofa on the art department side. Remember the Lavi Tidar show? That was Steve's work. He's also done the one that's coming up for next week's show, which is the. Uh, best-selling writer we've got tad williams next week's show steve's done the artwork for that but steve's full-time job or you know he's a, he's a self-employed potter <laughs> yeah can you see where this is going can you, you know ever your leader there you know oh. so i thought and i just actually emailed steve and i said steve the look and shock in mind you know what i mean it's just like is there a chance well, Steve, you know, I'll, I'll knock something up and we're kind of talked about it because there's different methods, you know, and that was just actually the exciting bit. 
there's like slip casting you know where you kind of make moulds and you pour like liquid clay in and everything like that there's, he said like and I've asked like Steve to do like different kind of photographs of the, the stages you know so all that is going to go in the shop now I don't know how it's going to work or anything like that you know like kind of financial wise you know like say Steve's making like a few over there do I get them over here and make prototypes and you know send them off to get somewhere else no idea at yet you know and I don't expect you know hundreds and hundreds to sell you know so we'll just wait and see but there will be a page in the in the shop that'll have you know the kind of the photographs which that's what I quite like about you know the photographs from like a lump of clay all the way through going through the, the kind of cutting stage and then into the kind of kiln and then out and then the final product there will be this little fridge magnet <laughs> you know, from little acorns think of it like that you know what I mean so that's going to come up as well and I've got some more crazy wacky ideas <laughs> for this bloody shop you know what I mean? It's quite quite bizarre. Wallets made out of old tatty old books, but I'll I'll get onto that later. So that's the editorial. That's what's happening. You know that Josh is kind of polishing that shop and you know, actually giving it a bit of a refit because now things are needing. You know she's she's getting a big girl. Do you know the sofa's getting, she's she's a hefty girl. She's a hefty lass, and we need a kind of. You know, we don't just need that. We need like a landing page so that you can you can kind of navigate to wherever you want to go. You know, like I said, there's so much to her now. It's you know, she she needs a refit. So look out for little changes. What are going to be happening over the you know the coming weeks? And I'll certainly keep you in touch. And just before we get into the kind of the, the, the show, a little shout out. I'm after some help. Anyone can help me. Yes. Can anybody in, like, say, a Word document or a, any writing document, I'm after some words getting transcribed onto a document. If anyone's good at that, you know what I mean, anyone can spare a little bit of time, please just give us a little shout, starshipsover at gmail.com, and I'll tell you all about it. There you go. So I think we'll kick off first with a little bit of poetry. Stars by David C. Kopaska Merkel First published, Strange Horizons, 28th June, 2004. The door is locked. One of us outside, one inside. Me peeling stars from my shoulders, like chitons from rocks, shining and wet with the chill of the Pacific. You, volcano or limpet, clinging to my mind's eye like you were born there. Starlight streaming through your keyhole, hermit with a come-hither suicide note, written in a dead language, burning with fury of subduction scorned. Thoth took a page from your book, searing language into brains ill-equipped to use it. We fumble with the matches anyway, dementia boiling in the abyss if we slip. So I'm out here now, rubbing my shoulders raw, staring into those million, million suns and counting coup on my fingers, making five out of two and two. The God's book glows blackly now, and the door is locked. There you go. David, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have your work on the show. Thank you so much. And Julie Davis, thank you. Links to David's site and to Julie over at Forgotten Classics. 
Next up is Flash Fiction, and it comes from Ben Burgess. Give you a little heads up for Ben Burgess. Ben is a PhD candidate and instructor in philosophy department at the University of Miami, as well as a student in creative writing at the University of Southern Maine. And get this, this is where he works with the likes of Nilo Hopkins and James Patrick Kelly. He's also a 2006 graduate of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop. Stories have appeared in Fly Trap and Diet Soup. Now get this, his novella, Three Perspectives on the Role of the Anarchist in the Zombie Apocalypse. What a great title. Won second place prize in the 2008 period contest at, over at Tales of the Zombie War. Narration today comes from Jeff Lane, who lives in New Hampshire. He lives there with his wife and two beautiful blue-eyed, blonde-haired daughters. And because of this, he is currently digging a moat around his house and is in the market for crocodiles with a taste for teenage boys. He's also podcasting his novel, The Paper World, on his website, Jeff Lane Audiobooks. You can go there and listen to it free or find him in iTunes. This is a great narration as well. So, the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... Five Weird Things by Ben Burgess Read by Jeff Lane Number one, I grew up on a farm. This might not sound very weird, except that it was a Jewish socialist chicken farming cooperative in upstate New York. Yes, you read that right. It was founded in the 1940s as an American kibbutz by a bunch of boober-influenced, ultra-left-wing Zionists too radical to move to Israel until it made peace with the Arabs. I have no idea how this place survived as late as 1974, but it did. I was 14 when the co-op board finally voted to sell the place, and I'll tell you, finding out we could finally move to the city was like getting let out of prison early for good behavior. I celebrated the news with my cousin Aaron, two fists of Jack Daniels, and my first ever carton of Marlboro Reds. I passed out in the barn and when I stumbled back to the main house the next morning, stinking of chicken shit, tobacco, and vomit, I was grounded for a month. Number two. Yeah, I was 14. Yeah, that means I'm now 49. And yes, I know that I look more like 29. Is it cheating to list my age as a separate point? After all, most of the time being old doesn't feel weird so much as depressing. Number three. When I was a little kid, my mother would never let me have any of the toys I wanted, like G.I. Joe, on account of her pacifist principles. That meant that I ended up mostly playing with my sister's old Barbie dolls. I know how that sounds, but I'll defend whatever's left of my masculinity by adding that the game I always played with them was Nuclear Holocaust. I would imagine that they were making their way across the irradiated landscape, fighting mutants, and raiding abandoned stores for guns and food. Number four. You might think that with an imagination that twisted, I was already well on my way to my current occupation as a horror writer. I wasn't. In fact, I didn't even read my first horror story until about 20 years ago. What I was really into was optimistic, problem-solving, hard SF. One day, a couple of weeks before my bar mitzvah, I spent the whole morning outside the barn reading an issue of Analog. I was so engrossed in the stories that I refused to get up and do my chores. Mom got so mad, she ended up tearing the thing to shreds. A few years ago, when I'd started to make my reputation as a horror writer, I met Stanley Schmidt at a con. I presented him with a taped-up old magazine and told him the story. He laughed and said he was just sorry it was an issue from before he took over as editor.
Number 5. When I was 29, I met a guy at a loft party who claimed to be a vampire. That itself wasn't weird. Remember, this was New York in the 80s and Anne Rice was huge. Every idiot in black clothes claimed to be a vampire, and half of them wore those stupid plastic fangs. What is weird is what happened right after the party. This was during one of those subway workers' strikes, so as obnoxious as this guy was, when he offered me a ride home, I still took it. I was too drunk to notice at first when he veered off into an alley. I didn't start screaming until he took off his plastic fangs to reveal the real ones underneath. Later, as I lay slumped in the passenger seat on the verge of death, he bit his tongue hard enough to make himself bleed. Then he kissed me, letting his own salty blood drip down my throat. If I'd read some Anne Rice myself, I might have known what that meant. I found out the next morning, when I tried to go outside, into the sun. There you go. Don't forget copyright is Mr. Young, Mr. Ben Burgess. Next up, we have our good friend Rod Barnett. Film Talk, Rod. What's going on? Hello, everybody. I've been doing reviews here for the Starship Sofa for a number of months now, and it recently occurred to me that although I've done plenty of science fiction reviews, some superhero film reviews, even a smidgen of horror, I've not yet really touched on fantasy films. And I love fantasy films, so today I'm going to remedy that with a review of one of my favorites. Golden Voyage of Sinbad, a Ray Harryhausen film, a great movie. And it's just fantastic. As the Golden Voyage begins, the fabled nautical adventurer, played by the fantastic John Philip Law, and his crew are sailing on the open sea when they spot a strange flying creature. Frightened by an arrow fired by one of the sailors, the creature drops a small golden tablet. After Sinbad ties the object around his neck, he has several nightmare-like visions of a tall man dressed in black, and a dancing girl with an eye tattooed on the palm of her hand. When a storm blows the ship off course, Sinbad is sure the land they come upon is connected to his dreams somehow. Going ashore alone, he encounters the man in black from his vision. The dark man identifies himself as Prince Kura, a sorcerer who claims the golden tablet as his own and demands its return. Escaping into a nearby city, Sinbad is met by the benevolent, gold-masked Grand Vizier, who explains Kura's bid to obtain ultimate power. To gain this power, the wizard must unite the three separate pieces of a magical sign. The golden tablet Sinbad wears around his neck is one of those pieces, while the Vizier controls another. When combining their two segments together, they discover a map that can lead them to the third and together they vow to foil Korra's evil scheme. A rich man's wastrel son and the slave girl Marginia, whose tattooed hand may just play a part in stopping the evil prince, join Sinbad on the journey. They set sail for the legendary Isle of Lemuria, with Korra and his henchmen in close pursuit. Now, of the three Sinbad movies, made by Ray Harryhausen, The Golden Voyage has always, always, always been my favorite. Most people like 1958's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad more, and I can understand that. But I feel that the story in Golden Voyage is better 
and I really like John Philip Law in the lead role. He seems much more suited to the character and even affects an accent to add to his performance. It also helps that the, the slave girl is played by Carolyn Monroe, one of the most beautiful women to ever grace the silver screen. And she's really the only female on display here, giving us more time to stare longingly at her beautiful tanned body and lose ourselves in her lovely eyes. And she's not even a special effect. Although Jason and the Argonauts will always be Harryhausen's greatest film, this one gives him plenty of moments to shine, and he capitalizes on all of them. Each creature brought to stop-motion life here is a wonder to behold, with beautiful details and amazing flowing movement. I'll never get over my original childhood fear of the prow of Sinbad's ship, which comes to life under Cora's power. It's a combination of the blank, unchanging face of the wooden woman and the creepy sound effects of her moving that send chills down my spine. There are two showstoppers in Golden Voyage that rival the skeleton fight in Seventh Voyage. One is the grotesque one-eyed centaur that battles a mighty griffin. The other, a living six-armed statue of Kali that comes to life to fight Sinbad and his crew. That fight is a masterful bit of action that bears repeated viewings. With all these pyrotechnics, you might expect the film to be a bit too broad, but my favorite moment in the film is the quiet scene of Kura's new homunculus awakening to life. The detailed facial expressions and body language of the small-winged beast is mesmerizing. This is one of the best animation sequences of Harryhausen's career, in my humble opinion. Moments like this make Golden Voyage a wonderful film that will go on entertaining audiences for generations to come. And luckily, lots of people agree with me. In 1992, to acknowledge Harryhausen's contributions to the film industry, he was awarded the Gordon E. Sawyer Award by the Academy of Motion Pictures, that would be an Oscar people, for technological contributions which have brought credit to the industry. He really deserved it, and it was kind of a neat touch at that ceremony that Tom Hanks gave him the award and claimed that the best film in the world, as far as he was concerned, was Jason and the Argonauts. Hey, not going to argue with Hanks. He's a nice guy. But I kind of like Golden Voyage a little better. It's often said that they don't make them like they used to. This film is a perfect example of that statement's basic truth. The clearness of purpose that can be felt behind Harryhausen's fantasy films is almost never evident in cinema today. Each of his movies simply feels as if it were crafted by people who cared very much about making the best possible film they could. These stories weren't shaped by committees, vetted by a legal department, or altered by businessmen looking for a good Happy Meal tie-in. These films were put together by people in love with the stories and in love with filmmaking. Any story changes were done for budgetary or time constraints, not because the vice president of marketing thought his kids would like a blue monster better than a green one. So much of what has been lost over the years in Hollywood is a plain unwillingness to admit that creativity needs both freedom and limits. The freedom to attempt new and untried things and the limits imposed by schedules and money. 
If a Sinbad movie were to be made today, there would be more effort put into the toy and fast food tie-ins than on the script or pre-production. And you know what happens when that approach is used? Steven Summers' The Mummy from 1999 and its sequels and The Scorpion King and the 1998 Godzilla film. You know, empty marketing tools camouflaged as entertainment. But you won't find the folks behind those movies agreeing with me. Each one made more than $100 million. Hey, who needs a good story well told when the audience seems perfectly happy with crap? Give the people what they want! Well, I'll climb down off my soapbox now. Maybe that was a bit of a rant for no real purpose, but... At the end of the day, thank goodness that the Ray Harryhausen films are still around to let us see the qualities we can hope for in a fantasy film. Good films can still be made, and the Harryhausen films are a good thing to study if you want to know how to do it well. And ooh, somehow I got all the way through a review of The Golden Voyage of Sinbad without mentioning that the fourth Doctor Who, the most popular Doctor Who, Tom Baker, plays the bad guy. He plays Cora. Just a little added incentive for science fiction fans who might want to check this movie out. Doctor Who plays the bad guy. At any rate, it's a great film. Seek it out. You'll probably love it. Rod, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I really do look forward to listening to your work. Thank you so much. So next up is our main fiction, and it comes from C.L. Holland, a UK writer, a new UK writer. Dipped her toes in the Writers of the Future competition and came out and won. I'll give you a little heads up about, you can actually go and check over on, I've put the link on to C.L. Holland's blog. Please pop over there and like I said, this story is just totally absorbing. Do you know what I mean? Just like, if you're driving, don't close your eyes. But it's one of them stories where you just kind of sit back and just get totally lost in a great story. I'll give you a little heads up what Writers of the Future is. And first off as well, if you want to hear the president of Writers of the Future and Galaxy Press, John Goodwin, pop over to last week's show on Sofa Notes. He's, he's on that show and John gives a great insight into science fiction and you know what science fiction means to him what he hopes to get out of science fiction you know there's a lot of work a lot of talk about dystopian futures and everything like that but then there's this light aside and John's got some great vision looking towards the future of science fiction where he want to take it and where, where he thinks it'll go it's just a, it's a great show and also on Sofano Show, a couple of weeks back, we had the two winners. And actually, it's Cheryl C.L. Holland, who's on this show. This story's coming up. She was on that show, along with Mike Wood, another UK winner, with one of the judges that was out there, Sean Williams. And they give, the three of them give a great insight into what it means, you know, for them, writers of the future, you know, for them two new writers, what it meant to kind of, you know, it was just something that, all right, I'll, I'll try. And then all of a sudden, yes, they're in at the fight and they're, they're flown out of Hollywood, you know. And like I say, it's a legacy left by L. Ron Hubbard for all new writers. And this competition, four times a year, you've got a chance to enter this competition. And what Sean Williams was saying, who was like a past winner, and Sean Williams, who just played last week on the show, you know, he kind of cut his teeth on this competition. And it's, he says it's kind of one of these vital things that... To keep science fiction going, and you know, we need the kind of the new blood coming through, and it's got what what's special about writers of the future. It's like the kind of judges that are there assessing this work. You know, you've got some amazing judges. 
I mean, I'll list some of these judges like you say. This is like the cream of the cream. You've got Robert Silverberg, Robert J. Sawyer, Tim Powers, Fred Paul, Jerry Purnell, Larry Niven, Anne McCaffrey, Nina Kariki Hoffman, Orson Scott Cord, Kevin J. Anderson. And it's not just the writer's side of it. There is also the competition's open for illustrators as well. So, and again, four times a year, this competition's open for illustrators. So it's well worth you going on and having a look. As you have a look in the feed as well, you'll also see the artwork that accompanies the reflection of memory. I'm not even going to attempt the name of the artist that did that, but this is the Gold Award Illustrator winner that did Cheryl's work. And if you listen to Cheryl on Sofnot, she says it was like so like spooky and real, you know, like a, a really weird, strange feeling, seeing someone put their interpretation of her story into art. And again, it's a fantastic bit of artwork. This story is narrated by our good friend, Kate Baker, who has just helped me so much on the sofa notes and just is a remarkable narrator. So don't forget, all copyright is writers of the future for this story. And I've also got, in the future to come, Mike Wood's story as well, which is another fantastic story. So please just sit back and just get lost in this story. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Reflection of Memory by C.L. Holland as narrated by Kate Baker. It was cold, so cold that the girl could hardly feel anything except a dull ache in her hands and feet. Something squawked in front of her and she was startled enough to open her eyes. A beady silver-gray eye stared at her. The jackdaw flapped its dark wings and hopped backward as she waved her arm to scare it off. The limb felt heavy and far away as if it belonged to someone else. She let it fall and closed her eyes again. The next time she opened them, it was to warmth. A heavy cloak had been wrapped around her, and a campfire set shadows dancing against the snow. Beside it, feeding it twigs, sat a dark-haired man. There was something about him that was familiar, and after a moment she placed it. You were the jackdaw. Her own voice made her jump. She hadn't meant to speak out loud. He turned to face her and she saw his eyes were brown and cheerful, not a jackdaw's eyes. I was, he agreed, although I'm surprised you noticed. It wasn't a jackdaw's voice either. It matched his eyes. What were you doing all the way out here? There was a blizzard. If I hadn't found you... I don't know. I was just here. She sat up and looked around at the trees that surrounded them. Wherever here is. We're in the forest, south of Lorne Hold. The way he caught her gaze told her he thought she should know it, but it meant nothing to her. She shook her head and his brow creased. You don't remember anything? Where you were before? There isn't anything before, she explained. It seemed odd, now that she said it out loud. The man sat back on his heels and studied her with a scrutiny that reminded her of the bird. What's your name? Should I have one? She couldn't think of any people who would want to call her anything. He stared. Everyone has a name. Mine is Kestrin. Now he'd said it, she could see it, although it didn't quite fit. 
like boots he had worn into rather than ones made just for him. She wondered where the thought had come from, even as she reflected that it was probably better than no boots at all. After a moment, Kestrin seemed to accept that she wasn't going to answer in kind. "'I should take you back to the hold,' he said. "'There might be someone there who knows you.' She nodded. "'All right.' She settled the thick cloak around her shoulders as he extinguished the fire, and then he took her through the forest. After a time it became obvious he was only on foot for her benefit. He stumbled in the snow as if he wasn't used to it. "'Are you a man, or a bird, really?' He glanced sidelong at her. Both, maybe. I was born a man. But you prefer being a bird. She wondered how someone could be more comfortable in a form other than their own. Perhaps it was like his name, and he had yet to grow into his shape. Do you only become a jackdaw? No. I just happened to be one when I found you. He tripped over a root and caught himself against a tree trunk. You don't have to walk with me, she said. I can still follow if you fly ahead. That would be rude, he said and kept walking. They traveled until the light faded and finally the trees gave way to a snow-covered road that shone like a river in the moonlight and a cluster of lights in the distance. Lorne hold. She stopped and stared. Kestrin came to stand at her shoulder. It's not as far as it looks. I'll fly ahead and let them know we're coming, then come back for you. Just keep to the road and it will be all right. She tried to watch as Kestrin changed shape, but all she saw was a dark-haired man one moment, and then the next he was gone, in the shape of something sleek that shot through the air like an arrow. For a few moments she stood still, unwilling to mark the snow with her passage. The lights of Lorne Hold flickered like yellow stars that had fallen to earth, Everything else was stillness and silence. It seemed as if she were the only creature left in all the world, and she shivered, wondering what would happen to her if Kestrin didn't come back. She stepped onto the road and started walking. Lorne Hole didn't seem to grow any nearer, although when she looked back, the forest and her footsteps had disappeared into shadow. After a while, a shape came out of the dark toward her, she held up her arm so the bird could land there. It changed in midair into a jackdaw and fastened its claws on her wrist. She moved her hand up to her shoulder to let it perch. The bird ruffled its feathers, tickling her ear, and then settled. Dark wooden gates bound with iron swung open as they approached the gray-walled hold. They revealed a courtyard that blazed with light and buildings made of the same dark bricks. A woman met them who seemed of an age with Kestrin. She had his warm eyes, but her hair was honey-blonde instead of dark. Her gaze went to the jackdaw, and she sighed. "'It's bad enough you chose to spend the winter in the forest as a wild thing, without you keeping the shape when you come home. If you're not careful, you'll forget how to be a man.' The jackdaw hopped into the air, and a moment later was Kestrin again. "'I won't,' he said. I know who I am, even when I'm a bird. Asta, did you get my message? Yes. Asta's gaze slid sideways to the girl. Welcome to Lornhold. You're most welcome, especially as you brought my errant brother home. 
The girl didn't know what to say, so she remained silent. She doesn't remember her name, Kestrin said. I hope that someone here might know her. His eyes said more than his words, although the girl couldn't tell what message passed to his sister. Of course. We can ask tomorrow. She turned back to the girl. In the meantime, I've had a room prepared for you, and there's hot food if you want it. This way. Azta ushered them into an anteroom where they hung their cloaks and kicked the snow from their boots. From there, they followed her into a wide hall with a long table at the far side. Shelves lined with bottles and jugs, books, instruments, and all manner of objects were dotted around the walls. Between them were fireplaces that were surrounded by clusters of people around smaller tables, who nodded or waved greetings and then went back to their conversations. "'Uncle Kestrin!' A whirlwind of children struck them and wrapped their arms around Kestrin. The girl took a step back, overwhelmed, as he hugged them and scooped an unsteady toddler into his arms. "'Don't worry,' Asda said softly beside her. "'They'll calm down once they've greeted him. Come and have something to eat. You look half-starved.' The girl let Asda show her to a seat at the table. At the other end of the bench, a girl of about fourteen sat with her knees drawn up, staring dreamily across the room. She had Kestrin's dark hair and the brown eyes that seemed the hallmark of the family. But she was surely too old to be either his or Asta's daughter. "'Are all of the children yours?' "'Those three are,' Asta replied, gesturing at the boy in Kestrin's arms, and the girls who seemed to be trying to climb him. Any offspring Kestrin may have were likely hatched rather than born. "'This is our sister, Marla.' At the sound of her name, the girl on the bench looked up. Her name was like Kestrin's, the girl realized. Something not yet grown into. Are you a jackdaw, too? she asked, without thinking. Marla gave a sleepy smile. No, I can't do birds. An instant later, she was a gangly adolescent cat with fur the color of smoke and yellow eyes. The cat butted against the girl's hand, then jumped from the bench and sauntered across the hall to greet her brother. Asta sent for a meal of roasted chicken and vegetables. The girl ate slowly, savoring the honey-glazed parsnips and chestnuts, and the richness of the chicken skin. When she'd finished, she leaned back against the wall and dozed, with the warmth of the fire wrapping her in comfort like a blanket. She heard Kestrin hand the children to a now-human Marla, who shepherded them out amidst a chorus of protests. He came to the table and sat beside his sister. "'We've missed you,' Asta said softly. "'The children especially. "'It's hard on them with their father away "'and an uncle who rarely comes home. "'Would you have come back if you hadn't found her?' "'Of course,' Kestrin replied between mouthfuls. "'I always come back.' "'So did father,' Asta sighed. Until one day he didn't. And you know that's not what I meant. Yapen will be here tomorrow. Were you trying to avoid him? Kestrin sighed. I don't see why you'd need me here for him to tell you what you already know. If you were that certain, you wouldn't fear being here when he arrives, Asta countered. A hold needs a holder, Kestrin, and Yapen can tell us who it is. At least stay until he arrives. I intend to, he promised. He might be able to see who she is. 
The girl felt a flutter in her stomach that Kestrin would stay for her sake. There was a gentle touch on her arm, and she opened her eyes to see Asta smiling down at her. "'Don't sleep there,' she said. "'You'll regret it in the morning. Let me show you to your room.' The girl nodded her agreement and followed Asta from the hall. She said goodnight to Kestrin as she passed, and he smiled. "'Sleep well.' The room Asta took her to was large, with a fire burning low in the grate that gave everything soft, golden edges. A table stood beneath ornately embroidered curtains, and a chair with a cushion matched them. Beside the door a tall wardrobe stood sentry. The girl put the candle down and moved to the tub of hot water that sat beside the fire. She bathed, then slipped gratefully beneath the feather quilt and blew out the candle. With the sudden darkness came fear. Within it she seemed to herself frail and insubstantial, a nameless thing that would be easily lost in the anonymous night. What would she be when she woke up, she wondered. Would she find herself lost in the snow again, or wandering the halls of Lorne Hold like a ghost that had forgotten it was once alive? She drew the covers tighter around her, although it did little to still her trembling. With no one around to tell her who she wasn't, she didn't have any idea of who she was. When the door slipped open, she almost cried out. She listened rigidly for footsteps, but there were none. A moment later, something landed on the bed. She jerked, then stilled as the lump gave a reassuring meow. The cat curled up on the quilt over her feet, lending them its warmth. With the noise of its quiet purring in her ears, the girl slept. When she awoke, the cat was gone. The room was still dark, but there was an air of expectancy about the hold, as if it had just woken. She slipped out of bed, her toes curling away from the cold stone, and pulled back the curtains. Strips of light outlined the edge of the shutters, and she opened them to reveal a cloudy sky that was dappled pink. Beyond the walls, the forest stretched out against the snow in a tapestry of dark branches. A flock of birds, black with distance, wheeled from the trees, and she wondered if Kestrin was among them. A maid came, bringing hot water and new clothes. She offered to fetch breakfast, but the girl declined. She wanted to eat in the company of the hall rather than alone like a princess locked in a tower. She donned heavy, unfamiliar clothes and made her way down to the hall. In the doorway she paused, feeling as if she were on show. Kestrin was already at the table, entertaining his nieces and nephew with a tale. He looked up and smiled, and waved her over. The children stared at her with open curiosity as she sat opposite their uncle. She accepted a bowl of porridge and turned to see a pair of dark eyes staring across at her. "'You're the lady uncle Kestrin found,' the girl said while her sister hid her face behind her hair. "'Yes.' She glanced to Kestrin for support, but he was busy resting a pot of jam from his nephew's grip. "'You're very pretty.' "'Thank you.' The girl flushed, feeling awkward rather than pretty. "'What's your name?' Kestrin looked up abruptly at that, and his nephew reclaimed the pot with a crow of delight. "'I don't know.' Kestrin's niece looked startled, and her sister was surprised enough to come out from behind her blonde curtain and stare. "'Everyone has a name,' she protested, sounding for an instant exactly like Kestrin." "'Methany,' 
he said warningly. But they do, Methany scowled at him and retreated behind her hair again. Asta's oldest daughter pulled a face. We should give you a name, until you remember your real one. Otherwise, how will you know who you are? The girl's stomach tightened. That would be very kind of you. Kestrin prized the jam from his nephew and placed it firmly on the table. Driel, naming people isn't like naming pets. You need to think very hard about what you choose. I know that, Driel said crossly. Didn't I help mother name Rael? Her brother looked up and gurgled. Yes, you did, and I heard some of the suggestions you came up with. Real names only, agreed. All right. Driel pulled her sister from the bench and they disappeared into a corner to confer. Kestrin shifted Rael onto his lap and sighed. You may regret agreeing to that, he warned. It's better than no boots at all, the girl said softly. That afternoon, Marla took the girl on a tour of the hold, but no one looked at her with even a flicker of recognition. The rest of the day was spent in the warmth of the hall. Sometimes the girl sat alone, listening to the bustle of the place, but mostly she had company in the form of one or another of Kestrin's family. The only time she saw them all together was when they sat along the long table for the evening meal. The hall was fuller than the girl had yet seen it. Marla saw her looking. Everyone at the hold eats together once a day if they can, she explained. It's an old tradition to remind everyone that it's people that make the hold, not the stones. There's no holder, the girl replied, remembering the overheard conversation of the night before. Marla's mouth turned down at the corners. Kestrin and Asta exchanged a glance. Our mother was holder, Kestrin said. But she died, and never said which of us was holder after her. I'm sorry. The girl wanted to know more, but she was still a stranger here, and it wasn't her place to ask. She turned her attention back to the meal and reached for a bowl of stewed beans. It was at the end of the meal, when people had begun to drift about their business, that the outer door opened. Asda looked up and went very still, clutching at Kestrin's wrist. He followed her gaze and went pale. Yappin! Driel and Methany scampered across the hall and greeted the newcomer with almost as much enthusiasm as they had their uncle. The girl strained to look at him, but he had crouched in front of the children and all she could see was the firelight reflecting from his hair as if it were burnished gold. Kestrin and his sisters rose to their feet, leaving the girl to tend Riel at the table. The hall had grown quiet, except for the children, the conversation fading to little more than the whisper of the tide. Yapen stood as the holder's children approached, and bowed to them. Lord Kestrin, Lady Mala. He bowed deeper as he turned to Asta. My Lady Holder. The girl heard Kestrin release a held breath just before the hall erupted with sound. Asta's daughters gave a shout of delight and threw themselves into their mother's embrace. The watchers surged to their feet to congratulate their new holder. After a moment, a gray cat wound its way from the crowd, hopped onto the bench beside the girl, and became Marla. She scooped up Riel. Let's hope that Yapen can answer your question as easily. I don't understand, the girl admitted. What happened? Lorne Hold has a holder again, Marla said with contentment. 
He can see answers sometimes before he knows the question. He told us who the holder is. Oh. The girl considered this as she stared across at Yappin. It wasn't just his hair that was golden, she saw. His skin was a dusky gold, too. Shining threads glittered at the edge of his sleeves and in the embroidery of his high-colored shirt. She had expected his eyes to be amber like a cat's. You'll think you'll be able to tell me who I am? That was the plan, said Kestrin behind her. He held out his hands to her as Asta and Yapin freed themselves from the crowd. Yapin looked up as they approached and the girl felt a jolt go through her. His eyes weren't gold at all, but the color of rainwater, of ice over a frozen pool. Their unexpected coldness made her breath catch. Then he caught her gaze and she realized it was all in the color. His eyes widened as he stepped forward, a smile starting on his lips. The girl's breath caught, then he paused and frowned as if she were a problem to be solved. Did you know, he asked conversationally, that you have no name? The world seemed to spin. It was only that gaze pinning her like a butterfly that kept her upright. Beside her, she heard Kestrin speak. She's forgotten it. She doesn't know who she is. No, Yepin disagreed. He turned to Kestrin and she found she could breathe again. She has no name. The one she had there before isn't there now. It's why she's lost her memory. She is no longer who she was. She made a noise in her throat, wondering what she would do. Kestrin would go back to the forest, she realized, and she would be left alone at Lornhold. While his family would be kind, eventually their courtesy would become habit, till she faded into the background and was forgotten. Kestrin was arguing. How could she have no name? She's not a blank parchment. She knows things. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You couldn't possibly know unless she's someone. I don't know how, Yapin replied calmly. He sounded like sunlight would, the girl thought if it had a voice. My talent is in truths, not namings. What I see is bound in names. Without one, there is no truth. We have a name for her, Driel's voice silenced them all. Calony. The girl wiped her eyes and stared. Asta's daughters stood before her, holding hands. She was a princess, Methany whispered, in a story. She was very beautiful and very sad, like you. It's a lovely name, the girl said. Thank you. Driel and Methany beamed and wrapped their arms around her. Kalani hugged them back. When they broke away, Asta was waiting for them. That's enough excitement, I think. Off to bed with both of you. Mother! The girls wailed in unison. But Yappin's here, Driel protested. Can't we stay up to hear him play, please? Asta looked to Yappin, who sighed in mock annoyance. Is there no end to the task Lorne Hold requires of me? He looked around. Who'll accompany me? He asked of the hall at large. An old man volunteered, and at Yappin's urging, retrieved a fiddle from a shelf at the edge of the room. A bench was cleared for them as they sat. Conferring for a few moments as Yappin drew a harp from the case slung over his shoulder and tuned it. When he drew the instrument to him, the hall fell silent. Yapin picked out a handful of notes that wound around each other again and again. The old man nodded along, and after the second repetition raised his bow and played a counterpoint. Someone on the other side of the hall had found a pipe and began to play. The melodies were like streams that flowed their separate courses into the same river, and then Yapin began to sing. Kalani couldn't understand the words, but it didn't matter. She heard the longing in them, and saw in Yappin's eyes how far they'd traveled. His lips moved and his hand shaped notes from the harp, but his gaze, although it seemed fixed on her, saw something far beyond the walls of Lorne Hold. She realized that he, like she, was visiting a world to which he didn't belong. Yappin fell silent. A moment later, the piper stopped playing, and the fiddler played a last flourish before leaving the harp to end music. Yappin played the opening refrain once, twice, with his head bent over the harp and let the nodes fade into silence. He stayed like that as speech came back to his audience. The fiddler patted his shoulder and went back to his seat. Other musicians struck up a different tune. When Yappin looked up, he was at Lorne Hold again. He made his way back to the table, stopping to speak to the people who greeted him. Once he'd reached the table, Asta made her daughter say goodnight and took them and Rael out of the hall. The rest of them settled around the table and Kestrin poured Yapin a mug of ale. "'I've not heard that one before,' he remarked. "'It's been a long time since I've sung it,' Yapin replied. His pale gaze came up to meet Kalani's and she swallowed. "'Does it help?' She asked, Now that I have a name, do you see any more truth? I see that Kalani is a frightened young woman, 
who fears being alone. But I could see that before the girls named you. A new name doesn't make you who you were. Calony, Marla said thoughtfully. When we met, you asked if I was a jackdaw. How did you know that I changed shape? You knew I was the jackdaw, too, Keston remembered. I was sure you hadn't seen me change. I saw the jackdaw in you, Calony told him. And then when you told me your name, I realized it didn't fit quite right, as if it's for one shape only. I saw Marla's name was the same as yours, so I asked. What about mine? Yapin asked. She looked at him and frowned, trying to see him the same way she'd seen them. Your name fits so closely it's like a second skin, she said finally. It's as if you are your name. Completely. Yapin nodded. So you have talent. It's odd it survived the loss of your name. Couldn't you do it for yourself? Marla asked. If you looked at your reflection. I don't know. I don't think it would work unless I already knew the name of the person I was looking at. It's worth a try, Castron said. He went to one of the shells and found a mirror framed with carved ivy, which he polished with his sleeve. Here. Calony took the mirror and raised it. For an instant she saw nothing but the hall behind her. Then there was a flash of red-brown hair and a face turned to frown at her. Go away! She jumped back in shock. The mirror leapt from her hands and shattered against the table. What is it? Kestrin asked, coming to her side. What did you see? Calony couldn't answer. She stared at the fragments of glass on the table, each showing her a tiny image of herself. Every reflection seemed to be doing something different. Some scowled, some shooed her away. Others turned their back. A moment later, all were gone. She choked back a sob, shrugged away from Kestron's hand on her shoulder, and ran from the hall. How do you feel? Kestron asked her at breakfast the next day. It was late and the hall was mostly empty, but his presence alone was enough to make her cheeks hot. Embarrassed for making such a scene. Don't be. The hall has seen worse. He passed her a plate and paused. I'm going away for a few days. She put the plate down carefully in front of her. Where? I'm going to the nearest holds to ask if anyone knows you there. You'd fly all that way for me? I can't just do nothing, he replied. You could have a family somewhere, wondering where you are. I didn't want to leave without telling you. When are you going? Soon. This morning. He must have seen her uncertainty, for he laid his hand on hers. I'll come back as soon as I can. He left as soon as she'd finished breakfast. Calony stood with Kestrin's sisters and watched as he spiraled up into the gray sky and disappeared. Marla touched her gently on the arm. Don't worry, she said. Calony tried to smile. Several days later, she sat in the garden on a carved stone seat and watched as Marla crept among the undergrowth on four legs, scaring the birds from their hiding places. There was a cry from above. Pale feathers shot past, edged with black. The gull landed on the top of a brimming birdbath, flexed its disheveled wings, and drank greedily. Then, when it had its fill, it fixed Calony with its yellow gaze and became Kestrin. Marla leapt for him. Kestrin grabbed the cat by the scruff of her neck and slid down to sit on the ground. 
You should know better, he told her as she dangled in front of him. A moment later, it was his sister he held. She threw herself forward and wrapped her arms around him. What happened? You look dreadful. He flinched back. Careful. I think I lost a few feathers. I had to fight the wind all the way back. What did they say? Not now, Marla, otherwise I'll have to tell it again and again. For the moment, all I want is a bath and a hot meal. Kellany saw the dark shadows under his eyes and the way his hands shook as he pulled himself to his feet. He turned to her. Kellany, are you well? Better now, thank you, she smiled. Best you get some rest. You look like something the cat dragged home. Marla gave a shout of laughter. Kestrin gave a lopsided smile and shrugged and went inside. Kalani didn't see him again until the evening meal. Yapin joined them at the table clad in another high-collared shirt. His eyes caught the blue of it and it became the color of sky. They made small talk as they ate, exchanging pieces of news like trinkets. Kalani felt her gaze going back again and again to Kestrin. He ate ravenously, not joining in on the conversation. He barely seemed to notice the others until Asta said his name for the second time and he looked up. "'What did you find?' she asked. He shook his head. "'No one knew anything of an auburn-haired girl who went out in the snow and didn't come back.' Kalani's breath caught in her throat and she thought she might cry. "'Then that's it. There's nowhere left to ask.' "'Actually,' Yapin said softly, "'there is. Far south there is a river that widens before it plunges over a waterfall.' Just before it falls, there is an island covered in trees, and in the center of that is the house of a woman who can see the truth of names. He caught her gaze and held it, and she wondered what else he was trying to tell her. It might be that you could find your name there. You'd take me? If you want to go. Me too, Kestrin said. I'd like to see this through. Yapin nodded. I leave tomorrow. I've stayed too long already. Thank you, Kalani replied, including them both. She thought of the seemingly endless forest that stretched beyond the wall and for the first time wondered what lay outside the boundaries of Lorne Hold. They left while the sky was still pink with dawn. Fingers of cold edged their way into Kalani's borrowed cloak and traveler's clothes. Asta hugged her close like a sister, then leaned away to snare her gaze. If you don't find what you're looking for, there will always be a place for you here. And if you do, Marla added. Yapin waited at the edge of the group. He'd replaced his usual high-collared shirts with rough linen and wool, a short sword at his hip and a gray scarf that looped around his neck. His gaze was distant, as if he saw the world of his song again. He looked up as Kalani touched his arm. Are you ready? he asked. Wordlessly, she nodded. They followed the road as it wound through the trees. Kalani tried to see the place where she had left the forest, but fresh snow had fallen and covered her tracks. She found herself hurrying to keep up with Yapin's long strides. Kestrin lagged behind them, heavy-eyed with sleep. Remembering the journey he'd just returned from, Kalani paused. "'You can ride on my shoulder if you like,' she offered. He blinked at her in surprise. Thank you, he said gratefully. 
He turned into something she didn't recognize, tiny with blue and white feathers, and nestled between her neck and hair. Kalani gave a few skipping steps to catch up with Yappin, careful not to dislodge Kestrin. "'Are you a long way from home?' she asked. Yapin looked down at her, and she got the feeling he'd only just remembered she was there. Then he gave a half-smile. "'Further in years than leagues,' he replied, "'and more than enough of both.' He glanced around, suddenly puzzled. "'Where's Kestrin?' Kalani edged aside her hair to reveal the roosting bird. Yapin laughed and turned back to the road. "'There are worse ways to travel. Don't let him make a habit of it, or he'll have you do his walking for him all the way there.' "'I wouldn't mind. It would be a long and lonely journey, though,' she reflected, and hoped Kestrin stayed human at least sometimes. "'Is it far?' she asked Yapin suddenly realizing she hadn't asked how long they had to travel. He shrugged. "'We'll probably catch up with the spring on the way.' "'I don't mind walking,' she replied. Walking, it turned out, became less enjoyable the more of it they did. Kalani's feet blistered, healed, and blistered again, and her legs ached more each morning than they had at the end of the day before. Kestrin often flew overhead when he grew tired of using his feet. Only Yapin seemed not to mind it. Sometimes they came to another hold. Kestrin stayed human on those nights out of courtesy, except once when he had accepted a challenge to race against the holder's prized hawks in one. And then they walked out of winter and into spring. Travel became more difficult at first as snow melted and frozen earth thawed into mud. Then it dried and Kalani began to see how the shape of the land was softer and greener than it had been around Lorne Hold. All around them flowers bloomed. Yapin told her their names while Kestrin circled above them on outstretched wings. Finally they crested a hill and saw the glint of water in the distance. A river found its way through the hills like a silver ribbon and widened around an island that was shaggy with trees even from a distance. It felt to Kalani like her heart stopped dead in her chest. Is that it? she asked Yapin. He nodded. We could reach it tonight, Kestrin said. You could. We will have to stop. Yapin pointed at a village nestled at the foot of the hill. There, I think. Good, Kalani was relieved. Proper beds and a hot meal and a bath. And we won't look like vagabonds when we get there, Kestrin agreed. Very well, then. Let's go. Yapin caught his arm. Just one thing. Stay human while we're there. If anyone asks, we're just simple travelers passing through. Don't tell anyone where we're going. Kalani felt fear shiver through her. Is it dangerous? Perhaps. The admission started Kalani. The people here are superstitious. They fear what they don't know, including the woman who lives on the river. Rumors have grown up around her like a wall of thorns. Such things can be dangerous. What if she doesn't want to see us? Kalani whispered. Yapin's rainwater gaze fell on her. I suspect, he said softly, that she will let us pass. They rose with the sun, the habit long ingrained by their travels. The village, too, was walking, and the villagers glanced at them as they passed, but wouldn't meet their eyes. Neither would the men who blocked their paths several hours later. The men wore the same rough garb as the villagers. 
Callany couldn't remember if she'd seen their faces before at the inn. One man with a beard as tangled as brambles stepped forward. There's a toll for passing this way, friends. By whose law? Yepin asked mildly. Other men emerged from the trees behind them. By the law of there being more of us than there are of you, the man replied reasonably. His companions laughed. Yapin shrugged. We've little on us but food. You're welcome to take lunch with us. You've got plenty else to share, the man replied, his gaze on Kalani. No, Yapin replied softly. Then I guess we'll have to take what we can. Everyone seemed to move at once. Kalani gave a shriek as Kestrin shoved her sideways into the bushes. She caught herself on her hands inches from tumbling into the river. Behind and above her she heard the sounds of men fighting, so many of them that she was sure her friends would be overwhelmed. She scrabbled at her belt for her knife, so far only used to cut her dinner. She held it in shaking hands and rose, just in time to see a dagger buried to the hilt in Yapin's side. "'No!' she screamed. Kestrin screamed with her. The sound became a hawk's cry. Those that had seen him change fled. The others threw up their arms to protect their faces from an onslaught of talons and beak, and ran away bleeding. The hawk gave a shriek of triumph and pursued them a distance, then flew back and became a man again. Standing in the bushes, clutching a knife she didn't know how to use, Kalani suddenly felt very foolish and very afraid. Yapin was on the ground, curled around the wound. He made a small noise in the back of his throat. She fell to her knees beside him and heard Kestrin come up behind her. "'What can we do?' she whispered. Yapin's eyes opened. His skin was sallow and more yellow than gold. Blood welled around his fingers. His lips moved, but Kalani couldn't hear the word they shaped. She leaned over him as he tried again. Wait. He sighed and stopped breathing. Kalani wailed and collapsed, sobbing onto his chest. Kestrin wrapped his arms around her and rested his cheek against her hair, murmuring words to soothe. She twisted in his embrace and clung to him like a child. When she calmed, she drew back and scrubbed at her eyes with a sleeve. Kestrin let her go, his face pale but composed. And she realized he hadn't cried. We should bury him, she said. He said to wait. She felt a flush of anger. Was this what becoming a bird did to him, made him detached from human pain? She pulled herself away and stood. Wait for what, Kestrin? He raised his hands helplessly. I don't know. We came so far. Kalani felt her tears rise to the surface again. We were so close. And now this. Kestrin moved to her, took her in his arms again. Yapin brought us this far, and he wouldn't want us to give up. I'll get you to that island, I promise. He lit a fire, more for comfort than warmth then left her sitting by it while he slipped away to the river to fish. She saw him sometimes shaking water from his feathers. When done, he brought back more fish than either of them could possibly eat. Wordlessly, he gutted the largest ones and left them wrapped in leaves and the ashes of the fire to bake. The smaller ones he threaded onto sticks to hold over the flames. They sat side by side, letting their dinner char. 
Callany glanced up at the sky and was surprised to see how late it was. We won't reach the island today, she said. We'll run out of light. Then we'll go tomorrow. In the morning we'll bury Yapin and finish our journey. Softened by cooking, Kestrin's fish fell into two pieces and landed in the fire. He cursed and tried to hook them out with a stick. The firelight brought some of the gold back to Yapin. She watched as the shadows danced over him, making it seem as if his chest rose and fell. His eyes glittered, and she shivered, wondering why neither she nor Kestrin had thought to close them. She went to him then, leaned close to the lids, and saw that he stared straight at her. His chest heaved, and he gasped. Kalani screamed. She almost fell in the fire in her haste to get away. Kestrin leapt to his feet. He froze as he saw Yapin sit up with his hand clutched the bloodied hole in his shirt. Yapin? He pulled Kalani behind him. Who else would I be? Yapin asked breathlessly. He glanced sideways at them. Is that fish? Is that fish? Kalani demanded, even as Kestrin reached for one of the leaf-wrapped bundles. You were dead! Yes, Yapin agreed. And now I'm hungry. Thank you, Kestrin. She rounded on Kestrin as Yapin attacked his meal, heedless of burned lips and fingers. Did you know about this? I suspected, he confessed, his gaze never leaving the other man. Yapin used to visit the hold when I was a child. He knew my parents, but he's never aged a day. And he never stays still. That made Yapin pause. Nowhere will shelter me for more than a handspan of days, he said darkly. It sounded like he was quoting. Not even my grave. That's why you said to wait, Kylani sighed. You could have warned us instead of frightening us like that. Yapin shrugged and tossed leaves and fish bones into the fire. I don't like to talk about it. He turned to his pack and replaced his ruined shirt, and Callany gasped as she saw the pale scars that decorated his back like lacework. Her hand brushed them and he went still. The pattern continued across his chest and stomach, and there, low on his side, she saw the darker mark that the dagger had left on him earlier that day. His gaze fixed on her as she reached up to unwind the scarf from around his throat, but he didn't move. Two scars lay there. One, red and angry, looped around his neck and was crossed by the white slash of the second. Every death leaves a mark, she whispered. Yapin shivered. She took back her hand and turned away as he pulled on his shirt. The journey began again at dawn, after breakfast of leftover fish. The river grew louder as they walked, and she realized that it was the sound of it falling into the distance. Finally, when it was so noisy it drove all thought from her, they saw the island. Its ring of trees looked impenetrable, except that a small boat bobbed in a pool at the foot of them. Kestrin cast a doubtful look up and down the bank. There's only one boat. That's of no matter, Yapin replied. He prodded the ground with his toe until he found what he was looking for and excavated a rope from beneath a layer of dead leaves. One end was tied around the base of a nearby tree. The other, when he tugged it, drew the boat into the river. 
The rope tied the boat to both banks, Kalani realized, and prevented it from going over the waterfall. She clambered into the vessel and sat in the middle, feeling the world buck and sway beneath her. Kestrin wore an expression of trepidation as he joined her. Perhaps I should fly. No, Yepin replied. Best we all arrive together. He settled and took up the oars, and then angled the boat into the current and crossed the river with surprising ease. On the other side, they'd pulled the boat up to the bank and climbed out. For a moment, the world seemed to move like the boat beneath Kalani's feet, and she clutched at the tree for support. Kestrin gave her a watery smile, his own steps cautious. The river's chatter faded quickly as they moved through the trees until it was easy to forget that they were on an island at all. Trees gave way to stone, to ruined walls and crumbling pillars that were so wrapped in ivy. They seemed as if they were made from it. Kalani stopped to run her fingers over a flash of exposed stone that was the color of cream. At the end of the pillar stood an archway that rose like a cliff out of the sea of vines. Beyond it she could see a stretch of pale flagstones dappled with sunlight. A sudden terrible thought came to her. It's all ruins, Yapin. How long ago was it that you were here? Not so long as to see everything it held lost, he said, his gaze on the arch. Most of this is just seeming, to keep people from coming too far. Oh. Kalani wandered to the archway and peered through. It seems real to me, she said and stepped through. Everything changed. The walls beyond the arch were whole, although ivy still crept its way across them. What Kalani had taken for a lack of roof, she suddenly saw was a falsehood. The branches above were all the roof the ruins needed. It's an antechamber, she realized. She followed the corridor towards the shadow at the end that was really a door. A flash of movement caught her eye. She turned and saw a face. Her face. Staring back at her nestled in ivy. In the mirror, her eyes widened as she took in a wave of auburn hair and eyes that reflected the green of the leaves. Then the mirror smiled. Alasana whispered a voice in her mind, and she remembered. The knowledge was like a wave that knocked Kalani from her feet and dragged her out to sea. She struggled as she realized what it meant, but the power of her true name was too strong. It flooded into her, and she was swept into the mirror, drowning in memory. Kalani? On the other side of the glass, Kestrin touched her shoulder. Kalani beat her fist against the mirror, but the other took his arm and turned him away so he wouldn't see. It's all right, she told him, and led him into her home. In the world behind the mirror was mostly silent. Kalani shouted as Kestrin and Yapin followed Alasana, but her cries echoed dully back at her. She tugged at their reflections, but it was like trying to hold back the tide. They passed out of the boundary of the glass and were gone. There was another mirror inside the door. Kalani found herself reflecting Alasana in a hall of white stone that was lit by sunlight from high windows. A silver sheen fell over everything. It was, she realized, the sheen that lay behind all the colors a mirror threw back. She pressed herself to the glass and heard the others talking, their voices muffled as if they were underwater. Kestrin, Alasana said. Will you try the other corridor? Of course. 
He moved away and left Alasana and Yapin alone. When he had turned the corner, Yapin glanced at the mirror. For an instant, he looked right at Kalani, and her heart leapt. But then he turned away. Alasana, he said, so softly that the words barely passed the glass. Surely there was an easier way to get me to come to you. Alasana gave a sad smile. I wasn't sure if you would if I asked. When we parted, I was unkind to you. Yapin reached out, and Kalani saw pain flicker across his face. He brushed Alasana's hair with his fingers. In the mirror, Kalani felt the ghostly touch of his reflection do the same and shivered. You thought that would keep me away, Alasana's voice cracked. What you are would keep you away. She swallowed, and Kalani felt her own throat close up with tears. Alasana took Yapin's hand and tugged him down the corridor. This way. I have something to show you. Kalani followed them, here a flash of light in a window, there a vague shape on the side of a silver ornament. They stopped beside a door, and Alasana had Yapin remove his sword. Then the door opened, and Kalani's world steadied again. She stared back at herself, endlessly copied in the tiny room walled with mirrors, almost blinded in the sunlight that streamed in through the windows and the ceiling. What's this? Kalani saw his eyes widen. I'm sorry, Alisana said. I'll be back soon. She closed the door and locked it. Somewhere behind them, Kestrin called. Alisana made her way back to him, and he frowned as he saw that she was alone. Then a look of realization crossed his face. Kalani threw herself against the mirror, beating her fists against its smoothness. You're not Kalani, he said. Not anymore, Alisana agreed. I know my name now, just like I know yours, little bird. She reached out to him, but Kestrin flinched away. Alisana's hand moved in the air, and as Kalani watched, she took his name, shaped it to fit him. He became a hawk, flew for the door, but landed in a heap as Alisana took the flight from him. Her hands closed on his wings and pinned them, and then he was a jackdaw struggling and squawking. Alisana held him firmly, heedless of his attempts to peck at her. She took him into a lavish sitting room where an empty cage waited in the corner. Kalani screamed as he was locked inside. So did Kestrin. He beat himself against the bars with fury. Hush, little bird, Alisana said. You'll have your freedom soon enough. She closed the doors on his protest and moved through the empty halls. Kalani moved with her. Everything seemed familiar, and she realized that she had been in this place before, a silent observer. She remembered watching as Alasana sent her servants away, and released her birds from their cages. The birds had taken their freedom easily, and the servants less so, until she assured them she would be back. The light began to fade, and Alasana went to her chamber to sleep. Kalani lay in the reflection of the feather bed, barely able to see her other self beyond the glass. A sliver of moonlight was all that kept the mirror from growing completely dark. When it did, Kalani was sure she and all her memories would fade. Alone and in silence, she wept. Over time, the moon rose and a glint of light caught her eye. Kalani raised her head and scrubbed the tears from her eyes. The moon was reflected from the mirror onto the window in the corridor, and Kalani saw herself there too. 
She glanced up at the moon, back to the reflection within, a reflection. Perhaps, she breathed and stepped into the image. In the window, everything was vague and transparent. Like the mirror, she was unable to go outside the bounds of the glass until she caught a glimpse of herself in the curve of a polished door handle and stepped into that. From there, she moved to a gilded picture frame and the world turned yellow, and then she found another mirror and paused to catch her bearings. The moonlight turned the hallway stark, divided them into light and shade. She moved again and found her way to Kestrin. Squeezed onto the thin silver bars, the closest reflective surface she could find, it took her a moment to see him. He was a shadow among shadows, roosting on the cage bottom in the corner closest to the window. A few dark feathers lay on the floor beside the cage, and Kalani felt her heart constrict. Kestrin couldn't help her, but perhaps Yapin could. He, at least, was in his own shape. But how to get into a room that reflected only itself? Kalani left Kestrin sleeping and moved along the corridors again, noticing how the shadows and paths of light had changed as the moon rose higher. The light, she realized. The room was lit from above. She moved upwards at the speed of thought, stepping from reflection to reflection. From a mirror she moved to a window, and then outside to another high window, at an angle to the first. She had a sudden, dizzying view of the island from above, and dove for the window and the roof of a low building in the courtyard. Yapin seemed to be sleeping, but as she moved around the room, his eyes opened. Kalani, he greeted her. You did see me, she gasped. I wasn't sure. She placed a hand on the glass. Yapin moved closer and placed his hands on hers. His reflection, which had moved up behind her, did the same. When he spoke again, his voice came from the shape within the glass. I saw, he said. That's what I do, after all. That's why she hid her name in the mirrors. She knew you'd come when you saw me. Why didn't you tell me you recognized me? Being told your name is not the same as remembering it. It wouldn't have given you back what you'd lost. Besides, I'd guess she'd done this to herself, and I wanted to know why. He glanced around the mirror room. Now I do. What will she do to you? I think she means to keep me in here, and divert the curse of my name. There are bindings in the glass. The pull to move on will reflect back on itself endlessly. Will it work? I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps she has another plan. Where's Kestrin? In a cage. She did something to his name. He's trapped as a bird. She said she'll let him go, but I don't see how she can. He won't leave without you. She could let him go, still trapped in his name, Yavin replied. No one will know what happened here, then. And he'll never be a man again. Kalani sighed and sat down at the base of her mirror. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can even make it to the morning. The light keeps changing and shifting. I always have to move, staying ahead where the reflections are. He gave her a small smile in answer. Live until morning. His eyes met hers, the same silver as the mirror. Take your life back. You're as powerful as she is. It's not my life, Callany said bitterly. 
and I was nothing more than a mask to her. Maybe, but the last time you were that side of the mirror, you had no name. Yep, and glanced upwards. You need to go. We're losing the light. She moved up the mirrors and back outside, around the building, into the place she could find with the most light and mirrors. There she rested until the sun began to rise, and she made her way back to the bedroom. Alasana didn't seem to see her when she woke. Kalani followed like a shadow as she took food and water to Kestrin. He croaked miserably and upended the bowls on the floor of the cage. Alasana smiled gently. Soon, she told him. Then she went to the kitchen and made breakfast, piling a portion on a tray. Yapin was already awake when she opened the door, standing at the back of the room as if he'd been waiting for her. Alasana, he said. She came into the room and paused by the door, which clicked shut behind her. He glanced at the tray she held. Do you intend to keep me here forever? Only until I know how to free you, she said. I could take your name, hide it in something. But then you wouldn't be you. Anguish flickered across her face. Wouldn't that be preferable to a life of endless wandering? No, he said softly. I saw what that made of Kalani and how lost she felt. At least I know who I am. Wanderer or no. Then I'll have to change your name, Alisana said. But the closer the fit, the harder it is to do without completely changing its owner. I need time, Yapin. Time, I have, he said gently. He moved forward to the tray and put it to one side. Why can't you be happy with the time we have? How could I? How could I bear to see you knowing I only had you for a hand span of days before you were compelled to move again, not able to go with you, and never knowing when you'd return? Did you ever think, Yapin asked, moving to take her in his arms, how it is for me? They were reflected in the walls over and over. In dozens of mirrors, Kalani felt dozens of him embrace her. In the mirror behind Alasana, she turned and saw him looking right at her. His hands were clasped behind Alasana's back. She thought she understood. She reached out to each reflection until she saw them from every angle. In every mirror, she turned to face inwards and reached out to the reflections on either side of her. In every mirror and in every reflection of a mirror, she clasped hands with herself. Alasana caught sight of her. She stiffened and tried to pull away, but Yapin closed his eyes and held her tightly. In the mirrors, Kalani reached out and took Alasana's name, twisted the shape of it, and became herself again. She gasped, feeling the warmth of Yapin's arms around her. He loosened his grip and let her pull away enough that he could look down at her. Through unshed tears, he looked for truth of her name and realized her when he saw it. Kalani. Yes she whispered. We need to help Kestrin. She led him through the corridors, almost turning the wrong way because of her backward memory of them. Kestrin gave a warning croak as she opened the cage. Kestrin, it's me, she told him. She left the door open and stepped back. The jackdaw hopped to the edge and then flapped awkwardly to the back of a chair. Looking at him, she could see how his name had changed. She reached out and gently curved it back into shape. He made a noise that turned into a sob of relief as he became a man again. Kestrin, I'm sorry. 
Don't touch me. He pulled away from her outstretched hand. She felt her eyes sting with tears at the way he wouldn't look at her, at Yappin who had wished she was someone else. She choked back a sob and ran out into the woodland. She barely knew where she was going, only that the river grew louder. It roared in her ears and she looked down to see that she stood on the edge of the island, staring down into the waterfall with its spray cool on her face. She knew they were behind her and turned to face them. "'What do you want from me?' she screamed. "'I can't be both of them. I can't.' "'She loves you,' she told Yappin. "'She doesn't want to live without you, even though she can't live with you.' "'And I—' she choked off as she looked at Kestrin. "'I can't bear that you won't even look at me.' His eyes widened. "'Calony.' Goodbye, she told them, and stepped toward the water as if it were light. They must have moved at the same time, for she felt a hand close around each wrist. They pulled her away from the water's edge, and each seemed to wait for the other to speak first. Do what you must, Yappin said finally, his voice hoarse. I can't bear to think of her in pain because of me. Kalani nodded and stood on tiptoe to kiss him. As she did, she shaped her own name to make room for who she had once been and let the name Alasana unravel in the wind. When she released him, he stepped away, his eyes blind with tears. He stared on seeing out of the waterfall as she turned to Kestrin. "'Perhaps it's better if I start over,' she said. "'Forget all of this and begin again somewhere new.' "'Don't,' he said. "'Please,' he took her hands." Come back to Lorne Hold with me. Yes, she whispered, and he hugged her fiercely as if he were afraid she'd change her mind. When they stepped apart, Yappin was gone. Kestrin paled, but Kalani took his hand. He'll be all right, she said softly. We may even see him at Lorne Hold again, some day. Hand in hand, they went back to the river. Without Yappin, it took a long time to get to the other side they managed it. Kestrin found a stout branch and stove at the bottom of the boat. Then they headed for the hills and the shining road that the morning light made of the water. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Writers of the Future, Galaxy Press. A big thank you to John Goodwin for allowing Starships over to get this story on. I'll put a link on to Cheryl's blog. Do pop over there and say hello. And once again, Kate, thank you so much for a fine narration. I'll put all links to web addresses, both for here and Galaxy Press. But I'll just mention as well, Writers of the Future, If you, this is if you want to find out anything about the awards, the judges, the, the, kind of, the rules of the competition, the history of the competition, the, the blog, go over to writersofthefuture.com. If you want to buy the actual book, go over to galaxypress.com. And like I say, it's been going 25 years. There's 25 collections of short stories there, some amazing short fiction. And you'll also be able to pick this one up at Amazon as well. So there you go. Next up, our good friend, Larry Santuru, still plugging away. Larry. Hi, Tony and all. This is going to be the second-to-last report on this project. There'll be nothing next week. Uh, Cecilia and I are going to be in a 
downstate, cross-state Illinois, at the Bishop Hill Gathering of Authors, and I'll be hawking my wares and pimping some newly minted audio CDs of mine, so there won't be much time for me to do anything. In any event, the only real news this week is that Lord Dickens's declaration is all down, except for some connective tissue and some fleshing out of prime notions. It's all in the computer, some assembly required. So, on the 30th day, I believe this is, the creator is about to rest. Fortunately, I now have to go back to the creation and nudge and pair it, gussy it up for the prom. Some major elements that have yet to be done. When I work, I sometimes stall out, like I guess any writer does. Rather than stare at the screen, I start somewhere else. New scene, somewhere I know the story has to go, and I work it through until it's ready to be slipped into the main body. I've now got three of these, and they need to go in. Somehow doing that usually gets the juices going, and I end up returning to the stall point and finding my way out. Another matter with Lord Dickens, it's got a major plot and character through tale. This is the story itself and has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's the bulk of the piece. But interspersed across the tale are sections I call the intercuts. Sometimes these are just data dumps posing as historical voices. Sometimes they offer period resonance, uh, just a way to get the reader more involved in the world of the story. Sometimes they're just bad jokes and literary puns. Um, I picked up this technique from John Dos Passos in his USA trilogy and later from John Brunner in Stand on Zanzibar and The Sheep Look Up, two books which, if you haven't read them, you really should. They darkly predict a lot of what we know of the present world. Anyway, these have all been written as separate entities, these little intercuts, and I've now got to find where or if uh, they go into the main body. Anyway, tomorrow the creator rests, and he gets together the stuff he's going to try to hawk at Bishop Hill. The day after, I'm back to Lord Dickens. So anyway, that's it for me. Have a ball in Cyprus, Tony. Have a good couple of weeks, fellow sofanauts. This is Larry Santoro, resting. So there you go. That is Oral Delight, show 105. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been an honour to get, you know, writers of the future story up there. You know, it, it just like I say, these are what people are kind of keeping the field going. Do you know, we don't want to kind of just keep on looking to the past. You know, there's new blood out there. Please go over to Writers of Future at Galaxy Press. If you've got a story out there, you know, these can be big stories you can send over four times a year. And it's just an amazing prize money. Do you know what I mean? So all you budding writers out there and budding artists, you know, let's not forget the artwork as well. If you've got something, you know, up to 17,000 words, if you've got some illustrations, get them sent in. Four times a year you've got a chance to win that. Excellent. Next week's show coming up is a fantastic show. Getting next uh, Halloween, we have the amazing bestseller Tad Williams and Steve Raznick Tem as well. A great show. Please do look out for that. And if you want to please support Starship Sova, you know, I mean, pop over the website, there's donations there. Sign up for the, the sanatorium show. If you want to get my book, please go and get yourself that copy of Starship Sova's Volumes 1. That would be fantastic. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Thank you.
terror survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 